It's good to be back with you again. It's good to sing gospel songs with you that prepare us to hear the preaching of God's Word. I hope you don't take for granted the intentionality of the songs that are picked for you to sing and the scriptures that are picked for you to read because they do prepare us well for hearing God's Word. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, you have told us in your word, Jesus said that it is his food to do the will of the one who sent him. And so we pray now that we would feed on your will from your word and that we would do it from the heart that you would uncover the fears of our hearts, address them as our tender shepherd and faithful friend. May we understand how you are calling us to repent from our sins, to trust in Jesus for even more than we have trusted him to this point. I want to open our eyes. We would see wonderful things from your word. We are blind without your spirit filling our hearts, the same spirit that breathed out scripture. So Lord, fill us with your spirit. Together we pray to understand and rejoice at your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Josh Mitchell at Georgetown University has recently observed that we live in an age when we try to deflect attention away from our own guilt by scapegoating other groups that we don't belong to, whether on the right or on the left. The alt-right wants to scapegoat minorities, whereas the far left mainly wants to scapegoat majorities. As Mitchell sees it, this group scapegoating is how many today are trying to achieve or reestablish their idea of equality. But Mitchell reminds us, and I quote, equality among people can only be achieved on the basis of the radical asymmetry or inequality between God and man. Only if the scapegoat is divine can citizens be relieved of the need to scapegoat other mortal groups and then look upon one another as equals, and thereafter build a world together. In such a radically asymmetrical relationship between God and man, all mortals are broken, all mortals are stained, and none can be redeemed by scapegoating another kind. Within this radically asymmetrical relationship, the problem of man is not a group problem. Man's transgression inherited from Adam runs far deeper than the inheritance of kind that his father and mother bequeathed to him. In other words, no divine scapegoat, no mortal equality, end quote. It is almost as if Josh Mitchell had been reading Psalm 49.7 in his quiet time. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly. No mere mortal can serve as a scapegoat or ransom price for another. We live in a culture that counsels us to absolve guilt by shifting blame onto other groups. Cancel culture has introduced the prospect of offering up other individuals or groups to the social gods in order to absolve ourselves of the guilt we still feel for the wrong things we know we've done. But that's going nowhere. We need another way. Or rather, we need the old way. If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 49, Psalm 49, we're going to listen to what the psalm teaches us. We're going to understand it. What's the point? And then we're going to apply it together at the end. But first, we need to listen. Let's listen to it. We'll read it piecemeal, starting with Psalm 49, 1 through 4. Hear this, all peoples, 
Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. So that's the command in verses 1 through 4. Listen, listen up. Everybody, everybody, all people from all people groups in all places. This is relevant at all times, all places, all stations of life. Whether you're a big shot or a low life, listen up. Psalm 49 is for you. The psalmist is going to speak wisdom because he's already applied his own heart to meditating out God's truth for his life. You see that? He himself is already inclining his ear to a proverb. He's meditating on a riddle that has presented itself to him in life. There's an enigma, a conundrum that is puzzling him. It's keeping him up at night. It's distracting him. He's staring a hole in the floor in social settings, and it's awkward because he's distracted. What is with this problem? He's been sitting at the kitchen table, sitting in church, meditating on this from the wisdom of God's word. So what he's about to say is not just his own opinion. It's not just some formulaic canned advice. What he's saying here is not just the equivalent of, well, can't take it with you when you go. It's not trite. It's not some top 40 mix between Max Lucado and Dale Carnegie. This is better than that. It's deeper than that. It engages your heart more intently than that. It's coming from a heart that has wrestled with this conundrum in real life, and it's universally true no matter what culture you're in. Verses 1 to 2, he wants all kinds of people everywhere to hear this, low and high, rich and poor. Verse 3, he's going to speak with wisdom and understanding. He's going to show you how to meditate yourself out of confusion over the problem of evil. Verses 5 to 12, why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling place to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man and his pomp will not remain He is like the beasts that perish. So why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? That phrase, those who cheat me, translates a really difficult word picture. The the original phrase is the iniquity of my heels. Man, if you come across that in your King James Bible, you're like, I don't know what that means. What is the iniquity of my heels? I have something on mine. I don't know what that means. That's not a thing in English, is it? But the idea is probably like Jacob grabbing Esau's heel, supplanting, deceiving, taking advantage of. So the NIV has, when wicked deceivers surround me, a Christian Standard Bible and the New American Standard has when the iniquity of my foes or my enemies surround me, but in a whole psalm that's permeated with financial language, those who cheat me in the ESV, it's about as good as it gets for translating the iniquity of my heels. So what then is the object of his fear? What is he so afraid of that he knows he shouldn't fear? What he struggles not to fear is being surrounded, maybe ambushed, by the sins of those who cheat him because they trust in their money and brag about how much of it they have. He fears being surrounded by the badness of bad people in bad times who want to do bad things to him and yet who trust that their wealth still says something good about them, even when they got it by doing something bad to him. That's what he fears. I mean, how do you even correct that? We still have a phrase for it. We say, well, that's rich. You're, you're saying that your wealth 
ill-gotten by taking it from this guy says something good about you. Rich. By which we mean the irony is so thick you could cut it with a knife. Do you not understand how bad you sound? They think the wealth they got by sinning says something good about them, and these are the kinds of times that he says he shouldn't fear. He's in those kind of times. He's not just dealing with one person that's like that. This is how it is these days to the psalmist. It's just par for the course. You're either a player or you're getting played in this environment. This is how people do. That's iniquity. That's worldliness. It makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. It's guilt-inducing. It's self-deceiving. It's cheating other people out of their money and then thinking, well, I must be doing something right because look at all this money I have. Or even worse, thinking, God must think I'm doing something right because look at all the money I have. Or worse still, thinking, God must think I'm doing more right than you're doing because he took your money and gave it to me and I got away with it. Not only must I not be doing something wrong, I must be doing something right. More right than you. At the very least, he fears being a minority, godly person surrounded by a majority, ungodly culture. He's, odd number, he's outnumbered, he's the odd man out, he's isolated, he's surrounded, and now he's become what the thieves call the mark. Well, this guy, he's never going to see it covered. Let's take it from him. The white-collar crime. This stuff is multiplying all around this guy, and now it's directed against him. That's what he fears. They trust in money. They act like it by trying to get his money, and then they brag about how much money they've got at the psalmist's expense. So this is a specific kind of fear of man. It's not just what will man think of me or say of me or do to me. It is that, but it's more than that. It's also more more than fear of missing out or losing out or fear of being left out or left behind. It is that, but it's more than that. It's fear of moneyed power committing injustice against you and getting away with it and being thought well of for it. It's being intimidated in your heart, fearing a future under the thumb of others, fearing how you will compare negatively to them. Fear of being surrounded and swallowed by the growing power of moneyed elites. Is the fear of looking at other people who enjoy material blessing as if they've got it all figured out while they're eating your lunch and you're eating their dust. It's living in a whole culture that works like that. And then other people looking at you and saying, look at all I have to show for my ungodliness and you. What do you have to show for all your godliness? Nothing. So why bother living like you when I can live like me and get away with it? So there may be even more to this fear. It may be a fear of regret. They trust in their wealth, self-confidence, And the psalmist fears that he has misplaced his confidence by comparison. After all, look at the results. They boast in their riches, self-satisfaction. And the psalmist fears that he has misplaced his own satisfaction. Have I played this wrong? Am I the one that's been the fool? Shouldn't I have been more worldly wise? He's relating to us his own experience of having to counsel himself out of second-guessing his whole life orientation towards God and eternity because the wicked are cheating him out of his money. The fear here is maybe I should have been trusting in wealth since they got the best of me. Maybe I should be boasting in riches like them. What am I doing? Living a godly life. 
in a town like this, in a society like this, in a culture like this, in an economic environment like this. That is what the psalmist knows he should not fear. He struggled with fearing it, and he's had to counsel his soul not to fear it, so when he struggles with fearing that, what does he say to himself? How does he counsel himself to not fear living in a culture that is eager to take advantage of him because everyone trusts in their money so much that they're willing to take it from each other? He counsels himself with verses 7 to 9. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. I know that much. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. But that's interesting advice, isn't it? That's interesting advice to give yourself. When you fear being surrounded and targeted by unscrupulous people, why is this comforting to him? What does this mean? He seems to mean that no matter how rich other people are and no, how, no matter how much they steal from me, neither their money nor mine can buy their way out of their grave. They may cheat me, but they're not going to cheat death. And they certainly won't cheat God, no matter how much money they have. No amount of money can bribe God into letting them off the hook from the death they owe him. And even if they do steal from you, they've taken nothing from you that could have made you right with God anyway, even if you did keep it. Your money can't save his life when he takes it from you. And your money can't save your life if he doesn't take it from you. So what's the big deal? All the money in the world won't prevent you or your enemy from dying. This is the application of eternal perspective. This is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? This is where you put your money where your mouth is. Do you believe this stuff? Do you act like you believe this stuff when you think someone else has taken your money? But why this idea of ransom? And it's emphatic. No man can by any means whatsoever ransom another, buy out his soul for, to free him from the obligation of death. No way. Why is this ransom of their life so costly and unable to suffice? Well, the background here is not just financial. It's in the Exodus. Exodus 13, 15, when Pharaoh refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both of man and of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons, I redeem, I ransom. So at the Exodus, God gave Pharaoh 10 warnings, gave him ample chance to let his people go from slavery. The 10th and final one was killing Egypt's firstborn, both of men and beasts. When God did that, he provided a lamb to substitute for the killing of Israel's firstborn, which implied that Israel deserved this plague for their sins, just as much as Egypt did. So the costliness of the ransom is not just due to the priceless value of the human soul in and of itself. It's because of the infinite debt that our souls owe for sinning against an infinitely holy God. We owe God our lives, not only because he created us, but also because we sinned against him grievously as our holy and good creator. Romans 5.12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's why we need to be ransomed. This ransom also carries the idea of slavery. Our sins have incurred a slavery that we can't buy ourselves out of, a debt we can't pay. We voluntarily enslaved ourselves to our favorite sins. Sex, greed, power, appetite. And that's why no one can or should live on forever and never see the pit in Psalm 49. Death is inevitable, not because death is natural. Death is inevitable 
because God is holy and therefore sin is real because sin is a contradiction of his holiness and a rebellion against it. Sin offends God's holiness and transgresses God's righteous boundaries for us and the wages of sin is death, both physical death and eternal conscious torment forever in hell under God's righteous wrath and indignation. And no matter how rich you are, the ransom price of your soul is literally too rich for your blood. There is no way for you to pay that ransom. But there is a way for the ransom to be paid. The problem is you don't have that kind of money on you. You don't even have the right currency. We'll get back to that in a minute. Now, everyone knows better to ignore all this in verses 10 to 11, your enemy included. For he sees, your enemy sees it, that even the wise die. Everybody sees this, including the guy who stole from you. He sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others, their graves or their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. You see the irony of that? Everyone dies and has to leave all their money to somebody else who outlived them, no matter how many counties or countries they named after themselves for posterity. All the land they will ever occupy in their death is what the undertaker dug up for their grave. Mm. Bought that nice 11-acre piece of land by the lake. Built your house. All the kids and grandkids can come by. And you know where you're going to die and spend the time in between now and when Jesus returns? In a six-foot-long box. In a seven-foot-long plot of land. And the psalmist kind of enjoys that irony. From an eternal point of view, the guy who cheated you is ultimately no better off for having done so. So what? What do you do with that money? Whatever he did with it, he's leaving it behind when he dies. And you are no worse off for having been cheated. You both die. The equation still zeroes out at the end. And neither of you can take it. And to put a point on it, the sons of Korah write a chorus in verse 12 that they'll repeat at the end of the song. Man and his pomp will not remain he is like the beasts that perish. Pomp is splendor, magnificence, and the respect and honor that goes with it. Pomp is what Haman suggested in Esther 6 for the man who the king wanted to honor. Give him a big ticker tape parade, make everybody bow down to him. Haman, Haman. That's pomp. It's used in the Bible both as a collective noun for valuables or treasure and also as visible honor. The kids today have a couple names for it. Swag, drip, bling. Anything you or other people do to make you look awesome. Right? And here, man in his pomp becomes a caricature, a cartoon of himself. A disproportioned exaggeration of his own worth and worthiness. He's the butt of his own joke. He cheated the psalmist to prop up his own pompous self-image. And what of it? Whatever came of that? Because he keels over just like a cow, like a beast. I saw a great Dane the other night. I was over at the house of a couple that goes to our church, and their neighbor came over with his great Dane. I was like, man, what a cool beast. Awesome. He was just drooling. His drool was like dripping down on the, on the ground. Beast. He was panting. <laughs> and he was afraid of bald guys. I mean, his owner was a bald guy. I'm a bald guy. My intern's a bald guy. He's like cowering from bald people. Man in his pomp 
will perish like that stupid dog. Even if you live in Barrington or Winnetka or whatever those other rich suburbs are, you're going to die like a beast. Scripture's telling you that. All the wealth that man thought distinguished him as superhuman, even suprahuman. Look at everything I have. Look at everything I master. Look at everything that serves me. Look at everything that dignifies my humanity. Look at how the coop of my car wraps itself around me in leather luxury and everything is ergonomically convenient. All that wealth, you know, it'll keep you from dying. You still die like a beast. 49, 13 to 15. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Foolish confidence. It's confidence, but it's foolish. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for shield. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Play it out, he says. You play it out. What's the end game? Yet people praise them for living and dying like that and even trying to imitate them like that after they die. No one learns from the mistakes of the pompous. Maybe it's time we start learning from their mistakes. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. They think that they're the independent thinkers, the pioneers, cutting their own path, doing it their own way, all the way. No, they're sheep. See, these kind of people that he's critiquing, these kind of people he's critiquing look at other people, and they, they call them what? Sheeple. Sheeple, you're following I'm doing it my way. I'm getting rich. I'm going to be the head, not the tail. I know better. And the psalmist says, that doesn't keep you from being a sheep. It just gives you a whole different shepherd, and it's not a shepherd you want. Like sheep, they are appointed for shield. Death shall be their shepherd. They devoured the wealth of others in life, and so they themselves will be devoured in death, by death. And when the morning of the resurrection comes, the shoe will be on the other foot, and the upright will be ruling over them. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. They made sure they had memberships to all the right gyms and all the right skin creams in their vanity cabinet. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to cheat death. I'm going to stay young. You're going to stay young. And their svelte, unblemished bodies will rot in the grave just like everyone else's. Meanwhile, God will ransom the soul of the psalmist from the decomposing power of death. He will ransom me. He will receive me. This relates back to verse 7. No man can ransom another or even himself. True enough, but God can. God can. And he will ransom the one who trusts in him rather than trusting in human wealth and cunning and youth. Eternal perspective is what enables you to persevere through the injustices of this world. And now in verse 16, he turns from teaching us to now counseling us. There's a difference. Here's how the world works. Here's my, been my experience. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you to do about this. Ready? Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never see never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. So be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. Now that is a broader piece of counsel 
than the teaching that he gave me in verse 5. In verse 5, he said he didn't need to fear when the iniquity of cheaters surrounds him and everybody's trusting in their own wealth. Here, it's don't be afraid when a man gets rich and his glory increases, even if he never does do you a bit of wrong. So this is not about the rich mistreating me. It's just about the rich being rich, period. It's about someone else getting rich and you watching that happen. Scripture thinks I need to be told not to fear when other people get rich. But that's not something I think about all the time. I'm not always thinking, man, I hope nobody else gets rich. But the psalmist tells me, hey man, that's in your heart, so listen up. So what is it about someone else in this room who is not now rich, then becoming rich right before my eyes. What is about that that would scare me? Hmm? Why would I fear if a friend got rich and their glory shot through the roof and I didn't get rich and my glory stayed unglorious? The psalmist thinks there is something in my heart that would fear that because there was something in his heart that feared that. So what is it in my heart and in your heart that fears the specter of someone else getting rich and famous? Who you know. It's what that wealth appears to say about him. That's what you fear. That's what we fear. It's what he and others will take that wealth to say about him in verse 18. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. There it is. Hashtag blessed. Oh, Lord, thank you for this blessing. I'm a blessed man. He comes to church the next week. The Lord blessed me. I'm blessed. And this is not just happy. Otherwise, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, would have translated it Markarios, but the Septuagint translated it as a verb eulogeo. You, good, logeo, to speak, to speak well of, spoken well of, either by myself or other people, blessed, complimented, respected by man and maybe by the God who gave the wealth to him. That's what we fear. We fear that when other people get rich, maybe they're the ones doing it right. Maybe their money is God's way of saying that God favors them over you. This man counts himself as having God's favor. He takes his own material abundance as a sign of spiritual security and even divine favor. And you look at that someone who is not rich and you say, well, God must not think or feel that way about me. You look at that guy, got rich, and you say, well, looks like God loves him more. He didn't give me that. And you yourself are tempted to that same kind of thinking in verse 18, if it were you to be the one who were blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, your business clicking on all cylinders, taking a nice profit at the end of the year, what do you think about that? What does your soul do? You find security in that? You find God's favor and blessing in that eternally? See, people will think well of you when you do well for yourself. People will think that God thinks well of you when you do well for yourself, and that will tempt you to think that God thinks well of you when you do well for yourself. You yourself are not immune to this corruption or exempt from this temptation. But to think that way, either of others or yourself, is to think without understanding. And that is the last little wrinkle in verse 20, right? Man in his pomp, yet without understanding. He didn't say that last time he said it. Man without understanding is like the beast that perish. It's not that all human honor or splendor is morally wrong. It's what you think that honor says about you that can be wrong. So we have listened. Now we need to understand this. Understand this. This is the point of the whole thing. Wealth says nothing about God's approval of those who have it. Wealth says nothing 
about God's approval of those who have it. That's a hard thing to remember. The reason you should believe that wealth says nothing about God's approval of those who have it, the reason you should believe that is that money cannot buy out your soul from sin to free you for heaven. It's the argument of the psalm. You check your wallet at death's door. You don't get to take it in. Nobody in heaven cares about your money, least of all God himself. You will die penniless no matter how rich you are. Money is worthless in heaven and it is kindling in hell. So this psalm is warning you that you will rot in your grave and you will be resurrected only to experience a never-ending process of dying in hell unless your soul is ransomed by God. So the million-dollar question is, how do you get your soul ransomed by God? This leads us into a few applications. First of which is to Jesus. Jesus lived and died, Psalm 49, in his own experience. He had no home in his life, no honor in death. Rich religious elites executed him on false charges, but God ransomed Jesus' soul from Sheol by raising him from the dead. Now that may seem like a whole lot to preach from Psalm 49, but it's no more than what Peter preached from Psalm 16 in Acts 2. Psalm 16.10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter said of that psalm in Acts 2.31 and 32 that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So if Peter said it about Psalm 16.10, he'd certainly say it about Psalm 49.15. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. God did ransom Jesus' soul from the grave. God did receive Jesus, not only risen from the dead, but glorified and ascended to his right hand to rule in power and glory. And therefore, you can and should trust Jesus to ransom your soul from the power of death and hell. Trust in Jesus to ransom your soul. Just because you're rich doesn't mean you're not a sinner. You are a sinner, and your money cannot buy off God. No man can ransom another. No money can ransom any man, true enough. But the God-man, Christ Jesus, can ransom another. And that is why he took on flesh in the first place. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. God is our holy creator. He's our righteous judge. He created us to know and love and serve him forever. And we sinned. We rebelled against his law and we refused to accept his love. We chose to discover right and wrong out from under God's protective authority. That's what it meant when Adam and Eve took from the, the fruit of the tree the knowledge of good and evil. We wanted to know that out from under God's protective authority. And that rebellion against an infinitely holy, righteous, generous, good, kind God drew down God's righteous wrath and deserves eternal conscious torment in hell. But God the Father is merciful and gracious. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh, to live the sinless human life we should have lived, and to obey God's commands perfectly, and then to endure God's curse for all those who will turn from their own self-reliance and sin and self-righteousness to rely on him to save them from the second death. Only Jesus' sinless blood and righteousness, only Jesus' life and death can ransom another because he didn't have any sin to ransom of his own. And this is why Peter says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, 
who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are not in your money, but are in God. We also need to learn the skill of solving life's riddles by meditating on Scripture from verses 1 to 4. This is what the psalmist did here. He says, give ear in verse 1, but why does he say that? Because he already inclined his own ear in verse 4. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle. Others should listen to him because he has first listened to God. And others should listen to you only if you listen to God's word. There's a paradox here. There's a puzzle, a conundrum, something confusing. And the psalmist had to meditate it out for himself with scripture. This is a skill. It's a competence that you need to develop as a Christian. The Christian soul encounters myriad conundrums in this life. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous languish? Who, why is there evil in a world created by a good God? Why is death no respecter of persons? Why do good people get treated as if they're bad while bad tre- people get treated as if they're good? You got to be able to counsel yourself out of that conundrum or it will kill you. It will depress you. You can't stay confused. You've you got to solve the puzzle. Solve the riddle in your soul by inclining your heart to Scripture. The way you solve it is meditating on Scripture. It's not just rote memorization. It's meditation. Think about it. Roll it over. Incline your ear to Scripture. Develop the taste and appetite for hearing God's Word so that you are not forever confused by the conundrum of evil. Also, very centrally, and so very briefly, because we've touched on it a lot throughout, don't mistake material abundance for God's approval. Do not mistake material abundance for God's approval. I kind of want to say that like another five times. Don't do that. The rich man counts himself blessed while he lives, but it was Lazarus who was welcomed to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man ended up parched in hell. Hell is teeming with people who were rich in this life and thought it would be valuable in the next. They're not the only people in hell, but the rich are among the people in hell. Don't mistake material abundance for God's approval. And don't ever trust in your wealth, even if you think you can or even if you wish you could. The difference between the psalmist and his enemies is that he trusted in God to ransom him while his enemies trusted in their wealth. Verse 6, they are those who trust in their wealth. Verse 15, God will ransom my soul. So how do you tell if you trust in your wealth or not? How can you tell that about yourself? What's the diagnostic to run on your soul to answer the question, do I trust in my wealth? Am I mistaking God's material blessing for eternal blessing? Am I mistaking material abundance for God's approval? How do I know? You trust in your wealth when it chokes out the Word of God, especially when it chokes out passages like this one in Psalm 49. Well, it can't mean that. It can't mean that. It can't mean that. It can't mean what it seems to mean. Yes, it can. Oh, yes, it can. Matthew 13, 22, As for what was sown among the thorns, the Word of God, this is the one who hears the Word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the Word, and it becomes unfruitful. Are you more interested in making money or being fruitful in Christ and in the church and in the gospel? They're not the same thing. Christian, you should not even wish you could trust in your wealth. Matthew 16, 24, whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for, in ransom for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And then your money's not going to mean nothing. Christian, you are not secure when you can buy things. You are secure because Jesus bought you. Eternity puts all economic injustice into perspective. When you die, your soul will embark upon eternity, and eternity dwarfs the length and losses of life in this world. This life is not all there is. As a Christian, then, playing the long game does not mean saving money for retirement. Not that that's wrong. 
It means investing your life in the things of eternity. Store up treasure in heaven. Eternity with Christ will more than compensate you for every inequity and injustice you ever suffer in this life. The reward will be disproportionately greater than whatever money or possessions or earning potential the wicked take from you or that you gave up to follow Jesus here on this earth. Death contextualizes inequality in the Bible. That's what's happening in Psalm 49. Death contextualizes inequality. Eternity contextualizes inequity for everyone. When a Christian gets cheated or swindled, he's not obsessed with how to get it all back and then some. He thinks, well, that's okay. Eternity is just around the corner. Jesus will make it up to me in space. That is living like a Christian. Also, I don't think I should have to say it. I probably don't have to say it to you, but I'm going to say it anyway. Because the Bible says it. Don't sue other Christians. Don't do that. 1 Corinthians 6, 7. When you trust in money, your first inclination when it's stolen from you might be to litigate. Paul tells us not to do that, especially with each other as Christians. 1 Corinthians 6, 7. To have lawsuits at all with each other is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? There's a question. Why not rather be defrauded? Let him take it. What are you living for anyway? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. The less you love money, the less inclined you are to sue when someone takes it from you. If somebody takes something that I don't value, I just let them have it. Right. So let's keep repenting from loving money. You know you love money when you're really upset when somebody else takes it from you. And Christian, don't be intimidated or impressed by self-important rich people. Don't be intimidated or impressed by self-important rich people. It is beneath a Christian, according to this psalm. It is beneath the dignity and security of a Christian to fear or envy the power of the rich. The rich and their riches are evanescent. They're fleeting. Here today, gone tomorrow. Their wealth does them no everlasting good and their injustice can do you no everlasting harm. So seek first the kingdom of God. Christian, your heavenly father knows everything that you need. He knows when you need it and he invites you to ask him to give you your daily bread. He's good, he's gonna give everything you need to you so seek his kingdom first. I, just, I was at my own church this morning for Sunday school and I came in, and, I, and a guy there has been looking for a much better job because he just can't find anything that is not totally debilitating to his family life and church life. And he had, a, he had an opportunity elsewhere. He didn't take it because he didn't want to move there. And it looks like the Lord's blessing him with a job here, and he can stay. And it's a huge relief to him. He made that decision, I think, biblically. He said, I, I don't want to... I don't want to sacrifice spiritually to gain materially or even in my political freedom that I feel. He wanted to move to Florida. Seems like every Christian wants to move to Florida right now, doesn't it? But the Lord honored that. He's seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and this other thing was added to him faster than we even imagined that it would be when we were praying for it. Seek first the kingdom of God. You make sure you're obeying the gospel. You trust and love Jesus. Serve and love Jesus in this church. Be bold and kind in your evangelism. Keep repenting from your own sins. Show hospitality to each other without complaining. That's in the Bible. And trust that God will add to you everything else you need in this life. Jesus said to the rich fool in Luke 12, the night, this night, your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. 
It's not wrong for you to prepare for retirement. It's wrong for you to prepare for retirement at the neglect of preparing for eternity. You don't have to take a vow of poverty, but friend, you better make sure you're getting rich towards God. Be rich in faith and love for Jesus. Be rich in the knowledge of the gospel so that when others come to you for godly counsel, you can actually have something to say to them from the Bible that they can apply in a trustworthy way. Be rich in repentance from your own sin. Be rich in evangelism. Be rich in making disciples for Jesus and good works for the church and Christian self-denial and gospel generosity. Paul told rich Christians in 1 Timothy 6.17, not that they should quit being rich, but rather not to be haughty or set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, they are too good. They are to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves and a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You don't have to take a vow of poverty. But if you're rich in money, you better be rich towards God. And many of us in the global West qualify as rich, even if we don't live in Barrington. Final application, don't second guess your godly life. Don't second guess it. It can be intimidating to watch somebody else become wealthy. His holdings, his happiness, his health, he looks so secure and we fear, am I losing out? Am I getting left behind? Should I have lived differently? Is the economy passing me by? Am I doing something wrong that God's not giving me these things? We look at those who are getting rich and we wonder privately, he must be doing something right and I must be in the wrong line of work. And so we fear in a way that entertains regret for the past, anxiety for our future, maybe fear for our children's prospects. We think, what have I done? How have I lived? I've thrown away my earning potential because, look, his family's got it made while mine's barely barely making it. He's living party to party. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. Psalm 49 counsels you, do not second guess your godly life like that. Read Psalm 49. And pray it into your life. If you are in Christ, then you can say with Psalm 49, God will ransom my soul. He will receive me. And that eternal perspective, having your guilt absolved by a divine scapegoat, will make all the difference in how you respond to everyone else. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are often uncomfortable when other people make it big or make it rich. We are jealous. We are fearful. We wonder if we've done something wrong that you didn't give us, us, give us those things. And yet we read in your word that we are not to second guess trust in Christ like that. So Lord, make us steadfast and immovable in our faith in Jesus, that he will ransom our soul. For Jesus' sake, amen.